Okay, I'm Dan Rundy. I hold the Schreier Chair, and I'm a Senior Vice President here at CSIS. Uh, we are um, having a conversation about rebooting the innovation economy. RTI uh, is really one of the most important organizations you may or not have heard of. It's a billion-dollar organization with 5,000 employees. They do some of the most interesting research work in the world. And it's been a real privilege to partner with them the last couple of years on a number of publications. This one has just come out, Rebooting the Innovation Agenda, the Need for Resilient Institutions. We're going to be having a conversation today. Um, I think many of the countries that I work in and I've worked in, they don't want to just sell rocks and they don't want to sell agricultural products. They, don't want, they want to get out of the commodity business and they're interested in science, technology, and innovation. They, want to, they believe they're trying to achieve innovation-led economic growth. And it's a big part of the challenge of escaping the middle-income country trap. And so what has struck me as part of this work that we've done with RTI, RTI, Research Triangle Institute area, um, you know, the Research Triangle area was tobacco-based 70 years ago in North Carolina. If you've been down there, it's amazing, the transformation of that economy. That was a tri-sector playbook, education, private sector, government. And that playbook has been taken to other parts of the world to try and achieve the same kind of changes. And, it's not so easy, though, to copy-paste. You can't order on Amazon. You can't just order it up on Amazon. It's, it's, it's much more complicated than that. And one of the things we learned as part of the process last year is that the, the playbook that we've got, had for the last 70 years is being put under stress. There's a number of disruptors that are coming. And that's why we're calling it the need for resilient institutions. So we, uh, we went to Silicon Valley, we went to New York, we went to Washington and asked a series of a set, set of questions and asked different kinds of stakeholders about the changes that are coming to institutions to get ready for this. And that's what this report's about. We also did a five-part podcast series as part of that that I encourage you to listen to. I have a podcast series called Building the Future. We had a five-part series specifically on this. Um, I'm really pleased um, that Tim Gable has come up from uh, North Carolina, who's an executive vice president at RTI, and um, he's going to make some opening remarks. But I just want to say thank you to RTI, and, and thank you all for coming. I think this is going to be a really important and interesting conversation. Tim, come on up. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thank you. There we go. Yep. Extra step. Yep. Uh, thank you, Dan, very much. I wanted to uh, start by saying I'm Tim Gable. I'm from RTI International. And uh, uh, really just want to say thank you to Dan and the team here at CSIS. It's been a fabulous collaboration that we've had on this report. And I hope all of you will have a chance to not only read the report, but really enjoy the panel that we've got planned for you today. Um, as Dan said, we're um, uh, based in North Carolina. I wanted to tell you a little bit about uh, uh, RTI, if you don't mind. Just uh, um, We're a nonprofit research institute. Our mission is to improve the human condition by turning knowledge into practice. And so it's an applied research model. We're a soft money kind of place. But um, our history, as Dan alluded, uh, 60 years ago, uh, I'll take you back, 60 years ago, 1958. Um, this was the year uh, right after Sputnik, and uh, the space race was going on. And uh, if you remember the story of NASA, 1958 is when uh, President Eisenhower created NASA. And 1958 is also the point in time when the state of North Carolina was facing this challenge, a brain drain problem. We got these great universities of Duke University, North Carolina State University, UNC. Uh, but if you didn't work in tobacco or textiles or furniture in the state of North Carolina, there really wasn't a career path for you and you needed to leave. And so the state came together, created the Research Triangle Park 
region. And at that time, they created RTI, uh, at the time called Research Triangle Institute. Um, so shortly thereafter, in fact, I've got a picture here that I'll ask you to flash up, but shortly thereafter, uh, one of the earliest pieces of work that RTI had was really an innovation-led economic growth program. Um, this group of scientists was funded by NASA shortly after it was created by President Eisenhower to start looking at how to bring space technology into the U.S. economy. And so uh, some of the things that we were involved with over the years, and this goes back to the very founding of the organization, include things like uh, human implantable uh, technology that ultimately now has led to much of the technology for uh, diabetes patients. Or some of the mobility technology that you see in wheelchairs and, and technologies for the handicapped that spawned from uh, lunar rovers and stuff like that. And so um, the point of that is this notion of innovation and driving innovation into the economy has been part and parcel of what our mission has been since the day we were founded. So if you fast forward to today, here we are 60 years on, and much of the work that you see reflected in this report, uh, we're working around the globe uh, with countries like uh, Malaysia, um, like Thailand, like Canada, Australia, uh, working with governments, working with the academic sector, working with the commercial industries, um, to really think about how do you reframe a, an innovation agenda at a time in this world when things are moving so fast? And how do you marry up the policy side and the um, academic side and the commercial enterprise? And as, as I think most of us can appreciate over the next five to seven years, the changes that are gonna come into this world are really gonna be shaking things. And so are the foundations strong? Are our institutions resilient uh, to be able to take this? And so um, I think you'll enjoy the panel today. And again, I just wanted to say how much we appreciated the opportunity to work with CSIS in this work and, uh, and hope that you all uh, take from this report uh, the good learnings that we're bringing forward. So thanks. Okay. Or come on down for that matter, right? So. Come on down. Am I dating myself? Does anyone know about come on down and the price is right? Right, the price is right. Okay. All right, well, we've got a really interesting uh, set of panelists, and I want to um, I want to thank uh, I want to thank uh, Gary for for pinch hitting and doing joining the panel. Uh, our friend Nate Tibbetts, who is senior vice president at Qualcomm, had a family emergency and couldn't make 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 it today. We completely understand that, but. Um, but we've got really some wonderful people. My friend Sarah Lawrence, who's at RTI and is you know, a person who works at the intersection of business, government, uh, and educators all over the world, both domestically and overseas. And so I'm really glad you're here. I think you're the right person to talk about this. Then my, my very good friend, Magdia Min, who I've known for a really long time, who's an investment partner, who works at the Omidyar Network, who will tell you about, that can also make equity investments and can also do philanthropy and I think is a really one of the most interesting um, social, it's a social change organization I think is a way to describe it but right. you'll probably have a better way to describe it than I than than that and then uh, Gary Shapiro who you're gonna hear more about um, has just written a book called Ninja Future and he's the leader of the Consumer Technology Association which if you've been to CES in Las Vegas you know that Gary is the parent of, of uh, 
of CES and, and as uh, also a friend here of CSIS. Thanks for being here, Gary, and thanks for pinching and joining the panel. I'm very grateful. Thanks. Well, see if you thank me afterwards. I know. I will. <laughs> I promise. I know I will. I know I will. So, okay. So, so Sarah, we, we did this report which basically said, you know, we looked, we, we asked a series of questions. We did some work last year. Um, your experience are on that there is a playbook for, for change. If you want to have innovation-led economic growth, one of the big takeaways was there are some disruptions. With this, this report looks at the disruptions and, and looks at the need for resilient institutions. What, what were your reactions to, to, to what we found in this report? I think it's a great report. That was the first reaction. <laughs> good answer. That's good. I'll go with that. Uh, I think what's really valuable about the report is we know innovation is important. We know, and, and countries around the world, states here in the U.S., know that innovation is the way to transform the economy and create jobs, higher-paying jobs, which are important. Uh, what we learned from speaking to uh, different stakeholders here in D.C., in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, and also in New York, building off when we spoke to uh, folks in Malaysia and in Kenya yeah. and in India the prior year, is really learning about what some of the issues are that we aren't hearing in all of the research. Um, issues around, you know, we want to be the next Silicon Valley, but how do we do that? Um, issues around not just education, but how do you create a workforce that is ready for a lot of these new tech jobs that are coming? Uh, how do you, you know, we start hearing issues around the quality of certifications versus necessarily just a higher education degree. How do you get the business community and the university community to adapt their cultures to accept that certifications uh, might be a viable path to make uh, a lot of the youth population is just more employable. Uh, and issues around inclusion that we heard about. We know this is a challenge, but we don't know really what it means. And uh, it does not mean regulation. It does not mean that you have to make everything relevant to everyone. But paying attention to the geographic distribution of innovation and the benefits of how those are, are concentrated. Sarah, could you talk about, you know, there's a sense I, I get that a number of, you must have for every, a dime, you must want a dime for every time someone says to you, can I get, can I have an RTI, please? Mm -hmm. They must come to you, mm -hmm. they go to the research triangle and say, can I have one of those, please? How mm -hmm. do I get that? Mm -hmm. how, um, how, do you, how do you create the, the kind of community or the ecosystem that's needed and who, where does the change come from? Who's gonna lead that change? Sure, um, well first, for the first 10 years I got that question, I wanted to say no you can't, you know that. <laughs> but now I wanna say yes, I wanna be controversial. For so a yes. fee, yes, for you a fee can, we no. can do this. <laughs> you can copy paste. Um, what my biggest, uh, my biggest response is that it's investing in the intangibles. It's not investing in the real estate or the laboratories. Um, it's investing in R&D, it's investing in your people, it's investing in your educational institutions. Uh, so you're creating this culture and this pipeline and you're focusing on how you connect people. Uh, so it's the networks, it, it's the connective tissue, it's not just the research labs. Okay, and so how about, um, the, tell the story about El Salvador. So you, you work all over the world. I was struck, you were just telling the story offline about the conversation about El Salvador because it seems to me that's, that, that, I think, gets, gets to some of what you're describing here. 
Right, so we have a lot of people come to the Research Triangle region. I'm sure uh, Silicon Valley has the same. Uh, and what was different about a delegation from El Salvador is that we had a delegation from uh, government and from the business community and also from the universities. And it was palpable in the room. Uh, you, you saw everyone sitting in their different uh, sectors and that they didn't necessarily have a relationship or a strong relationship. Well, that's diplomatic. <laughs> it was probably tenser than that. Probably. Probably. Um, Just saying. But after two weeks uh, of visiting and having learning sessions you could see every day the stronger communication and then even just uh more informal uh, conversations and trust. And then I had the opportunity to work in El Salvador and San Salvador uh, the following year. So to engage with uh, these different stakeholders and see uh, in their board meetings the level of dialogue uh, coming together, trying to solve these issues, and then to be very uh, concrete about that. Uh, for example, the business community and the university community came together and said, we are not training people for IT at all. And it's one of the sectors that does have promise to employ a lot of our younger graduates. And so they went to the government and said, please, we're gonna change this curricula. Uh, and they were able to do that in three to six months, whereas typically it would have taken three to six years. So that's just an immediate result of, again, it's the connective tissue of bringing these different sectors together, not just building out their physical infrastructure. So it's about getting, getting leaders and change makers together, having some trust, mm -hmm but also getting on the same page of what the problem is mm -hmm. and perhaps having a sense of urgency? Definitely, a sense of urgency uh, can go a long way. We had that in our Research Triangle region. We were the second poorest per capita income 60 years ago. Uh, and we see that in El Salvador. There's of course a sense of urgency there. So I think uh, we tend to see more success and traction when the different sectors see that common sense of urgency and want to problem solve to that. And they're willing to make the long-term uh, commitment for it, knowing that innovation and the benefits of that do not, uh, the ROI does not happen in the first year. So when you're measuring these benefits, uh, you need to keep that in mind. Thanks. Okay, Maggie, thanks for being here. You and I have known each other a long time. We, we both worked together at the World Bank Review, or 20 years at the World Bank Review. Almost, almost. Almost, you started as a child prodigy. You started <laughs> as a child prodigy. But now you're at the Amethia Media Network and you're working on the issue of digital identity. Mm -hmm. And so there are a, there's a whole digital, there's, there's a whole ecosystem of governments, the private sector, um, associations, specific kinds of technology, technological regulation, and a whole series of thorny issues that get into, their, that are gonna be required to deal with certain kinds of technological innovation. That, so some things, there's some trade-offs perhaps that we have right. to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you, you, know, you deal with some pretty thorny issues every day. Talk a little bit about what is digital identity and how does it, how does it pertain to this conversation? Okay, yeah, thanks Dan. And yeah, we've known each other a long time, both uh, World Bank and, and IFC and the World Bank Group in general, and I uh, really appreciate what you've done here Thank and you. your focus on development, but in a way that also supportive of business in the private sector. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Omidyar Network is a philanthropic investment fund and a firm that we, we take a sector view, as Dan was saying. We, we, uh, we take a venture capital mindset to solving problems, but we also are concerned with the broader environment and ecosystem around those problems. Um, and so I work on digital identity, and digital identity is something that we, we take a broad view of. There is digital identity that governments issue, 
And when they issue them, they can be done in a way that do empower people to participate, particularly there's about a billion people around the world that don't have uh, digital identity, and uh, about half of those are in Africa. Uh, Africa is rapidly digitizing, but if you don't have the ability to communicate and interrelate with that digital world, you'll be left behind. So we see a big inclusion agenda there. But we're also very aware of the potential downside risks. You know, like a lot of technologies, almost all technologies in a way are dual use. Be used to empower, they can also exclude, they could, there's also risks that emerge, particularly around the privacy of personal data. And you know, we take the view of identity, we take a broader view that includes how each of us interacts with the data economy here in the US in such a way that those firms that we're interacting with can effectively identify us, often for advertising and other, and other purposes. Um, and there needs to be some safeguards we think those safeguards are important for the sustainability of the industry itself, because we've seen now consumer, consumer behavior start to, uh, start to be very clear. All of the surveys, survey after survey, talk about very high, <clears throat> high levels of concern with data privacy, both on the commercial side, but also the potential for surveillance um, um, at the state level in many countries around the world. Like China. Well, well, I would say that I would be concerned about lots of countries where there's poor institutions or a lack of data privacy, but a lack of respect for basic human rights. Uh, so let's don't say have I'm a Hutu or a Tutsi in Rwanda. Do I, want, do I want the state to necessarily know if I'm a Hutu or a Tutsi or use that as sort of an identity? Absolutely. Is that something like that? Vulnerable communities can be targeted if there aren't safeguards around these technologies and how they're used to identify people. Like we just said, they can be used to empower, but if you're a vulnerable person, you may not necessarily want that information in the wrong hands. There's also, though, there's an upside to digital identity as well. Like, if yeah. you want to be able to have access to a bank, or you want yes. to access to financial services, yes. or you want access to government services, I mean, there's a reason we've had censuses. I don't know if that's the plural of census. Is it sensi or censuses? <laughs> we've had censuses since, for, since biblical Sensi. times because um, governments need to be able to know like how many, you know, how many noses are there, how many kids in school, births, et cetera. So there's a yeah. need for, and there are hundreds of millions of people who are in essence stateless people because, yeah. Yeah. you know, there's an assumption in the first world, if I can use that term, that, you know, everyone's got a birth certificate, we count people when they die. Even in this country, the dead sometimes vote because we don't actually count when someone dies, right? And so, so there's a, so this issue of, of stateless people is a real issue. Or if you're a Rohingya in Bangladesh, you're technically not really, you're not recognized uh, by the state of, I'm sorry, Rohingya in, in Myanmar. You're not seen as Myanmar and you're sort of rejected. And so, you know, there's all sorts of terrible things that happen as a result of that. And so, so having a digital identity, there's a balance between privacy, but also the upside of technology. Is that a fair absolutely, way to describe absolutely it? Absolutely right. And what we want to do so we're not against the benefits of technology. We, we emerge from the tech Can we world. do a survey? Is, who's in pro te is everyone pro-technology on this panel? We're pro-tech. Okay, everybody's here is pro-tech. <laughs> but we want it to be sustainable. And sustainability means to also be clear about what are the externalities or the, the downside risks that emerge so as to design in a way that protects for privacy, both privacy by design and where necessary regulation around to create those safeguards so that the tech actually realizes its highest and best use, which is that 
we can use it to empower ourselves. Yes, access to banks becomes easier at lower cost, KYC, uh, know your customer. customer regulations, become much more easy to fulfill. And when it becomes lower cost, therefore the lower income consumer becomes bankable. So it becomes more inclusive. Um, we can talk about ghost workers. I mean, so we workers. can solve those problems with technology. Absolutely, we can solve ghost worker problems. We can direct benefit transfers and therefore less waste in how, for example, fuel subsidies, which are a huge issue in development, get distributed. So there's lots of upsides. Uh, and the World Bank has a very good program, ID for D, uh, identity, uh, for, identity development. for development around this. Um, but we're also very concerned to make sure that when those systems get rolled out, they protect privacy, security, individual empowerment and agency, give people some control over their data. All right, so, so you know I like talking about China because I, I'm, I like to think we wear the white hats and some other countries wear the black hats. And so, so in China, I'm just using this as an example just for this Washington audience that there's, um, they've got a whole bunch of stuff. Where I don't think there's any privacy as far as I can tell. Now, you're not saying that's the only, this is sort of the extreme example. I'm using this right. as an extreme example. And what you're saying, I think you're saying, Magdi, is, Dan, there's lots of other countries other than China where we need to be kind of cognizant of this and we need to balance privacy and human rights all over the world. It yep. could even include this country as well yep. in terms yep. of how we balance these issues. But in China, my understanding is, uh, you, you know, they've got some kind of social scoring system. I was okay when they said I couldn't leave the city and I was okay when I couldn't travel. It hit a big red line for me when they're like, it impacts you, your, your, your data, your scoring on dating sites. So like the match.coms of China, you get some kind of, you get like a negative points if you have whatever, like a bad, bad political score, like it, you don't get swipe left or swipe right or whatever you, whatever the young people do these days. I'm too old for this stuff. But, but it seems to me that I thought that was a complete red line. I was like, whoa. So I think, so this is, this is a, this issue of privacy, but at the same time, let me just push on, on, on something else, Maggie. So, so China is sort of an extreme, but this isn't just a China issue. This no. is a global issue. Yep. But at the same time, getting it right to access these technologies can open up all sorts of services and opportunities yep. that we wouldn't have otherwise if we didn't have these technologies, right? Right, right. So, okay, so let me just go. So, so some people could say, well, even though China doesn't necessarily have the same kind of privacy safeguards, with AI and, and these other things that are coming, don't do, isn't there some kind of upside for them if they've got all they get to slice and dice all this data because yeah. they they yeah. you know in essence the Chinese government owns all the data. What do we say about that? So to, so taking the you know, I haven't done I haven't studied the Chinese system uh, very uh, in in great detail. Yeah. I do know that there is privacy regulation that is emerging. They have a two-tier level. They're sensitive information or sort of important information yeah. and uh, less sensitive information that are treated differently. What I would say is that we in the U.S., in this audience, and around the world, governments and the private sector need to think about what are the key issues? What are the key public goods and the key potential harms that we need to mitigate against? And not to have extremely blunt, unfocused regulation that would would in fact be a detriment to, um, to the innovations that do have such big benefits, but that clearly address those risks. And I think this has to be a global conversation because these are global products. Not, there's not a US ecosystem anymore. And Silicon Valley has become too big not to be confronting this maybe uncomfortable question between 
investment and regulation. It's just too important now. And these questions have to be addressed sensitively. And I just have to say that none of this is inevitable. We often see these revolutions as coming in ways that we can't solve for. I think we have to understand that we as consumers, as policymakers, as regulators, as investors, are responsible for creating the world that we want to see. We can shape it. We can shape it. And it's a moral question to see what is right, what is ethical that we need to solve for, and address it and make the investments accordingly. With our portfolio, we're investing in companies that are very good for, for business, that are great solutions, that are also good for privacy and take care of people's data. All right, so let me just say one more thing, and I want to turn it over to Gary. But we, we um, I'm going to use the example of flying cars. So I've seen the Jetsons. Who's seen the Jetsons, right? There's a thing called the Jetsons and flying cars. So I would argue we have the technology to have flying cars today. Like, why don't we have flying cars today? We don't have flying cars because we've made a series of policy and regulatory decisions. So to, to, to Maggie's point, we actually do have the power to shape the future. Policy matters, legal issues matter, regulatory issues matter. Um, that we actually could, we could have flying cars, but we don't. Now, I actually would say I wish we did have flying cars. So I think as we think about some of these revolutions that are coming, some of them may take a much longer time period to kind of kick in. So, I mean, driverless cars, and I hope we talk a little bit about driverless cars. So, when I think about driverless cars, you need, you probably need 5G, and that's going to take a while. You probably need to guarantee that, that the North Koreans can't hack the 5G so that the, all the cars crash into each other at once, yeah. right? Yeah. You need some kind of le, le, regulatory and uh, uh, thing having to do with lawsuits, right? We lose tw too many, far too many people, far too many people. With, with human error on driving cars, driver, driver full cars as opposed to driverless cars. And we lose far too many people. And there's, been a, there's an implicit social contract that says we accept this very high cost. And, it, and I think it's arguable it's a very high cost. And it's, pro, it's too high. But we're going to still lose people. And right now, you know, and so who's, who's going to get sued when someone gets killed in a driverless car accident? Is it Google? Is it Verizon? Is it Qualcomm? Is it the the special radar company whose name I don't know, you know, you know, who is a General Motors, who's going to be liable? So that's mm. a thing, I think. That's so this is thing. going back to the flying cars. This is all the reasons why I don't think we have flying cars, is because of these sorts of issues. So we can actually shape it. Sure. So there are things we can do to shape, sometimes for good. And I think we have to be careful about stifling innovation. I would argue the fact that we don't have flying cars, I think that's not necessarily a good thing. I wish we had flying cars, right? And I think, I hope we do have driverless cars, but I think we have to, I think, we can maybe go too far. And I think right. maybe the, 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 the non-existence of driverless cars is an example of us saying we're going to shape the future, perhaps not in a great way. That maybe it'd be great if we had flying cars, just like in Blade Runner, right? We don't have flying cars like in. So, so Maggie, I agree with you. We can shape it. We have to balance. We have to work together. This is what Sarah's saying. We have right. to have sort of a rule set. We need to balance some. It, there's a series of issues we have to balance. And I would argue in the case of flying cars, we decided that we weren't going to have flying cars. And that's too bad, because we actually have the technology for flying cars, but we don't have them. So as we have these revolutions, we can decide. It is that I would argue that we actually do have the power to decide. And sometimes, it's, and, but there are implications for that. And do we want, I actually hope the United States remains the world-beating world leader in technologies. And so I want to make sure we want to do that. But I also want to ensure that poor countries have a chance to participate in the upside of globalization. And that's why I'm so glad Gary's here. 
Um, I know he's going to talk about his book, but but Gary, what what do we need to do? You know, you're, you're, you. I could spend my entire time just rebutting what you've said. I know. I want you to rebut <laughs> it. So thanks for being here. So far, I'm doing really well. So just would you remind people? So you're at you're at the Consumer Technology Association. Would you just tell people what is CES? Just so just a, just a, a slight PSA before you rebut my stuff, because I want you to rebut what I said. But remind people what the Consumer Electronics Show is. How many so, people go to it? So the Consumer Technology Association is an NGO, to use your language. <laughs> we call it a trade association. We're based across the river here in Arlington, Crystal City, home of Amazon's new headquarters. And we have uh, 2,000 American companies that are our members, 2,000 plus. We also own and produce events around the world. We produce the, C the, the world's largest business event, the largest innovation event, the largest trade shows, the CES held each January in Las Vegas. Tracks about 180,000 business people, including about 60,000 people from outside the US, 4,500 different exhibitors, 7,000 press. It's known by, according to a recent survey, 45% of the American public knows what it is. Uh, we also have an event in uh, Shanghai we've had for five years. It'll be in June. And we have events in Paris and in Amsterdam and sometimes other places around the world. But we're a trade association, so we do things you'd expect us to do. We do lobbying. We, we count the widgets. We project the numbers of widget sales. Uh, we do all sorts of things, um, create standards. Uh, we helped create the HDTV standards. We did the RS-232, the back of the computer. We're doing a lot of in the drone area. And self-driving cars, we actually have a, a pretty active ecosystem of companies uh, helping us get there. Now, I want to uh, respond to so many different things you said. I just don't know where to begin, but I'll start with, when you talk about that we could do uh, flying cars, we can't. There were some companies showing things like Bell Helicopter at CES in just uh, January. Uh, and it's starting, but the drone technology's come along. One of the things that's helped it come along is the concept of uh, 3D printing, actually. It allowed mm. Bell to get their prototype in six months, where it usually takes several years. So the, how you could get something from the idea stage to the market has, has increased just rapidly in the last few years because of advances in 3D printing and lower costs. So that's changing the whole nature of getting your ideas to market. If we talk about self-driving cars, uh, we're already there, frankly. Uh, I've been in so many. I, was, I went a mile in San Francisco. There's a driver ready to take over. He never had to. He kept up with the trout. The car did fine. Google stopped their self-driving car experiment uh, with Waymo, where they were letting their employees take the cars to work, to home rather, and then go to work in them. Because they have a camera in the car, and they noticed that the employees were falling asleep, playing video games, texting. They were supposedly watching the road. It, it was working. It works really well. You've heard about two highly publicized deaths. There will be deaths with self-driving cars. They're not perfect, especially in the beginning. Uh, but we're, we have 35,000 accidents a year that kill people in the US, a million worldwide, hundreds of thousands of people. Everyone in this room has clearly been affected by people you know and love, and you've lost them. And there's a, there's a way out. We don't have to do that in the future. And we, with over 90% or 95%, depending on your estimate, of, of these collisions being caused by human error, there's possibilities there. But they're interesting. I mean, I could spend a lot of time talking about this, but the bottom line of it is, so we do market projections in, uh, of sales. We were, I was trying to figure out in December, I had my meeting with my market research team, and we're talking about you know, how we were readjusting 2018, projecting 2019. And I was a, we were a billion dollars off on car technology products. And I asked why. And the answer was that when people are buying new cars today, they're buying everything having to do with collision avoidance. So there's passive collision avoidance, 
where your car will vibrate or do something to you or move the wheel if you're going out of your lines. And there's active collision avoidance, which I actually have, which actually the car in front of you stops. If you're about to hit it, the car will stop. People are buying this. Americans are buying it. We are getting there very, very quickly. I mean, there are, every issue you've mentioned is surmounted. The legal links, that's just a question of working the legal issues out. I mean, we've, yeah. we've confronted that with every new technology since the invention of lawyers. Um, you know, they'll fight over it. Lawyers have killed the legislation in the Senate, sadly, last year after it passed the it's House. It's on driverless cars. On self-driving cars. But self, we are at self-driving now. We do have active collision avoidance. It's just a question of what level, how much we're going to get there. There's a law now in some states and federally built around the fact that you have to have a steering wheel. You could take the steering wheel and all that stuff with the driver out, save a ton of money on the car, save a, t a lot of the cost, the weight. It, it'll be not perfectly safe, very close to safe. You'll empower disabled people and elderly people. And it will change in so many ways. A lot of new businesses will be created around it, certainly. You'll be talking about um, people helping people with groceries, getting things from the car to the home. You still have people who have to be with kids. Um, you know, what happens if someone gets sick or dies in the car? There's a lot of, they have to be clean, they have to be maintained. But imagine if you could get, as the uh, CEO of Ford spoke at our show recently, envision a future where you have self-driving cars, how that'll change the nature of cities, the way Uber, Uber and Lyft today have changed where kids live. And if you want to talk about what's changed, it used to be for us growing up, and I'll put you in my age category. Put me in the, my, yes. Yeah, the, you know, <laughs> Thanks a lot. The driver's license in the car was, was our definition it was of, a right of coming passage. of age, exactly. of, of independence. It's no longer the case. The phone is today. That's what frees you up to the world. Kids aren't getting driver's licenses. They're not learning how to drive. It's, it's the, statistically, the car sales are going down among youth. And it's just not a matter of maybe, maybe some of it is they don't have the money that we had or whatever, the, but they don't need them anymore. And they're not necessary. And it's, it's a distraction. And we will free up work for ourselves if we could. Gary, so I could spend a lot of time with self-driving, but what was your... your no, so one of the points so all the things you mentioned as, as barriers, they're all overcome. They're all there are other... I mean, we have, look, we have a collision repair business, which is going to go away. Think about that. The auto insurance, to their credit, are figuring out the existing auto industry, I'll give them credit. They have seen the future, and every one of them is focused on self-driving. The Europeans a little bit less so, frankly, than the Americans and the Japanese and the Chinese, but they're all there. Some may think we may never get there totally. There will be those, and I sat with one on a plane, a member of Congress on a plane uh, last week, who said, basically, I will, he, he agreed with me on everything. It was great until we were landing. And then he said, <laughs> self-driving, never, I, I, I car race, I will never, ever get in a car where I don't, I'm not in control of the steering wheel. Gary, just, I, just, I want to get to some other things, but I just, I love what you were saying in the pregame lunch about. Oh, that's what you want talk me to about, say. I do. I want to talk about who stopped the bill on self-driving cars oh, and so why. In the Senate, it, it died for two reasons. The, the truck drivers got themselves taken out of the Senate bill, even though they're in the House, and they lobbied, even though there's like several hundred thousand truck driver jobs open today if anyone's looking for a job. They're there. I mean, I know in Virginia there's a 2.8% We can't fill, rate. though. There's, there's th several hundred thousand jobs we cannot we fill cannot on fill. a truck driver. And the trial lawyers put the death knell to it. Um, they just wouldn't let it go to the Senate floor. And you they described it, it as there will be an NRA of car drivers. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and there will be, because there are people who are passionate about their cars. But you know what? We've done a lot of research demographically. It depends who you talk to and what question you ask. If you ask older people, will they give up their car? Most people say no, except if they're really old and then they see the benefit that it empowers them because they could get around. Younger people are very, they don't care about cars. And if you ask the question to anybody, do you want to pay lower insurance premiums? Because of course you will. 
um, do you want to deal with aggressive and drunk drivers and have them? Yeah, you know, terrible. So there's, you ask the questions the right way. People love this. And once they get in one and they see that it works, and it's like, look, uh, this is a bad day to raise this issue. The truth is airplanes today are pretty much driven by artificial intelligence. And they we, phenomenal until a few months ago and, and this week, a phenomenal safety record. Phenomenal. I mean, the, the number yeah, how many of flights are there a year? Yeah. Five and even with these million? questionable planes at this point, the, the ratio is extraordinarily low. You're definitely more likely to die in a car accident for, per mile driven than a plane by a factor of like a thousand. So that's in terms of mission. In, in terms of what I'd like to talk about and some of the other things is that that's just one technology, self-driving cars. It's an application of something called artificial intelligence, which is really very big. And there's issues of blockchain. Can I ask another yes. panelist a question? Yes. So when you're focused on um, ID and things like that in developing countries, do you look at blockchain and look at it as a, a use case and also do you look at private property ownership and how if you could identify have private property ownership how that correlates with economic development yeah <clears throat> so the I mean the report was quite interesting in that it sort of mapped out institutions that over time were important to making economic development more sustainable and pro private property rights is a key institution you know uh, it makes it sort of democratizes the ability for us to trade own develop land and invest in them Today, the property rights need to be different, and we're not there yet, and about what are the, what are the rights around data? You know, we, we have different metaphors for data, but you know, to go back to your, your question, um, you know, give, me back, give me back your question. Private property. Yeah, private so, property. yeah, so, you know, private property is something that we can very, we, we, uh, if you have digital identity, you can link that to private property and make it more tradable. You, I think your question was on blockchain. Yeah. So, you know, we invest in blockchain where it makes sense, where the use case warrants it. A lot of people look at blockchain as a solution to a lot of things, and not necessarily should be. It's not the easiest solution, and it's therefore not the appropriate solution sometimes. But we have an investment in a company called Learning Machine, which uses blockchain to give you control over the, your ability to manage your certifications, like your education credentials. They're called block certs. Extremely powerful. Um, takes a lot of, it creates a lot of efficiency, taking middlemen out. So we believe in blockchain. We believe it's sometimes overly prescribed in terms of uh, use cases that doesn't need to be in. But, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of agnostic. If it works, we'll use it. If it doesn't work, we don't need it. Can I, can I ask you all about one of the things that I think comes up is the issue of changes of skills and human resource development in this, in this changing world. Right. Um, if, if we're going to get out of driving cars, you know, in every, in every instance of a, of a technological revolution, it's true that there are new jobs created. But it seems to me there's certain new kinds of skills and certain kinds, you need new kinds of skills to, to change with the times. Can I start with you, Sarah, in terms of how, do, how, do, how are you seeing uh, educational institutions think about sort of the changes that are coming? I'm not going to answer that exactly. So it's okay. But I want to answer, I want to get back to the point of, I do think we can manage that and we can create our futures. And I think a great example. You're buying that. You're buying we can totally shape it. Totally buying okay. it. Maybe not, we can't control everything, but okay. part of it. And because I want to bring up the example of, um, to me, this is disruption of industries and the examples of how Pittsburgh yes. dealt with uh, the manufacturing sector and all of the job losses there in the 80s versus Detroit. Right. 
And Detroit was later uh, as a community in terms of investing in new sectors that would create the jobs. Uh, Pittsburgh has the highest per capita um, philanthropic giving, uh, I believe, than any other city in the U.S. And the foundations came together and saw that the sector, manufacturing steel, was declining and the massive uh, disruption it was going to cause for uh, residents there, workers there, and invested in new sectors, invested in tech, uh, invested in linking Carnegie Mellon and uh, UPIT into building out incubators and biomedical sectors. And Pittsburgh now is one of these rising stars with self-driving cars. I took my first one there mm. to a U2 concert, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think that gets back to managing the transition. And I think that gets back to linking all of these disruptions, creating the space for technologies to take place. But how do we look at places that are going to be disrupted, <clears throat> look at the workers, and those who are going to be losing their jobs and make sure that you're creating openings in new sectors and training for jobs in those sectors. So in, what did Pittsburgh do different than Detroit? Was it about city government leadership? Was it university leadership? Was it philanthropy leadership or all of the above? I think it was about seeing the future, owning the disruption, and investing in emerging sectors that could create um, those jobs. So it was then all of the above. I think it gets back to the sense of urgency in a place. I think Pittsburgh is also a smaller community, so you have stronger networks uh, where there's stronger communication and connective tissue across the board. Uh, and so there were more synergies to create these investments. Is it perfect? Absolutely no. not, right? Are, are there plenty of displaced workers? I am confident that there are. But I think Pittsburgh is a tremendous success story, and it took also you know, 30 years for, I believe, a couple of years ago was the first year Pittsburgh did not have population loss. I thought it correlated with the strength of the football team. With the, with the football team. Okay, but what about, what was the role of education institutions in that? I think um, Carnegie Mellon and um, the University of Pittsburgh uh, were, played investments in those, the robotics. I mean, the robotics sector at, at Carnegie Mellon the group of professors there were actually hired by Uber. I'm digressing a little bit. Uber went and hired them. Stole. Put a big billboard, stole, put a big billboard outside of the university, paid them you know, double or something and said, come work with us. But let me answer your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, they invested in the whole ecosystem. So they invested in the universities. I think they, um, they then created these uh, technology incubators and accelerators. They invested in R&D. They invested in startup and support services to bring the R&D out of the universities into companies and into businesses that are now uh, a whole new industry sector uh, that are employing people and attracting uh, young people there because it's affordable. Gary and Maggie, can I bring you into this on, on the role of education and higher education? How's how do they play into this conversation about resiliency and, and change to make to make innovation-led economic growth happen? Maggie? It's a great set of questions, and I think we would all agree around the world that there's enough work, there are enough jobs being created, there are enough unsolved problems to absorb the labor. The problems are a couple. Okay? One is the business model of actually funding those solutions. Uh, and philanthropy can play a key role uh, in, some, in some environments. Some environments it might need to be the public sector, and some environments it might be elsewhere. But where, where we see a problem, I worked in Africa and the Middle East for a long time, the, 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 the public institutions were just not flexible enough to absorb the market signals 
and to develop the pipeline of skills needed to support the industries that were growing. And things were moving too quickly for the public sector to react. So that institutions need to be more nimble and more innovative and more responsive to signals. And once that happened, then that, that, that employment engines can start to create. And of course, it has to be lifelong. I mean, because a lot of people do have skills but are uh, educated in things that are not as needed now, but can very well be, you know, they can be adjacent sectors, they can be redeployed. So Let less art history and less, more engineering. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Tunisia, you had a huge number, the highest unemployment was in, was in college graduates, you know, that led to the Arab Spring. You see that in Morocco and some uh, elsewhere. So um, technical and vocational training, that concept needs to be expanded, but also in some way, kind of rethought, not just as an alternative to college, but that everybody needs to be continuously reinvesting in skills and delivered differently to be relevant in today's market. Hey, Gary, Gary, what do you think about it, this education question? Then I want to give Sarah a chance, because I, I suspect you may have a view. Yes, Gary, on higher education. I do. I will respond to that. But first, I have to answer Sarah, because she never finished the Detroit equation. Oh, yeah. Oh. Given my close connections to Detroit, like I'm there every week. Um, Detroit actually is a success story. It's just not a well-publicized one. They oh. did have the implosion of the U.S. auto industry, at least the U.S. unionized auto industry, uh, and they suffered from it. But this guy named Dan Gilbert, who owns, ironically, the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, lives there, and he has a mortgage company, which has done phenomenally well, and he's built a hundred or so businesses. He has he bought a hundred buildings in Detroit. Detroit suffered from a migration of people over a million people. It's the largest physical city in the country with its landmass. So it's now it's tough to get an apartment or a rental place in large portions of Detroit because it's so hot among young people. It's had a total turnaround. Really? And it's the unemployment there rate is very, very low and there's a lot of, and it's just not Dan, there's a lot of cohesiveness, uh, racially diverse cohesiveness actually in the city. It's very positive. So I, it's a phenomenal success story. You just don't, you just hear about the bankruptcy, but it's been, the turnaround is amazing. There's incredibly beautiful buildings that are, people are redoing it. It's just the parties, the tech sector there, it's just huge. So about education, obviously the, you know, one of the strengths of the United States at least is the university community. Uh, it's, it's a big one. And there is, I think, a, a strong sense that communities will do better if the educational system, especially at the upper level, coordinates. This morning I was at the Northern Virginia Technology Council board meeting, which is 60 CEOs, and the governor was there. And also the university presidents from Virginia are there, almost every meeting. And it's, it's a consolidating unit saying, we're going to focus, we're going to promote and sell to Amazon, we're going to do all these things, we're going to produce this stream of people, we need these type of uh, kids educated in these different areas. This is how we'll produce them. But we also realized that we could double the output of the universities in Virginia, and we're still not going to have enough of what we need. Hmm. We need more, hmm. and we need immigrants, and we're not getting them, yep. especially highly educated ones we're not getting. I mean, we get them and we kick them out. Uh, we've had a fall off in university applications from the from outside the United States. Honestly, you, since because the, they're not feeling you just welcome. can't blame Trump since September 11th. Um, so that's, it's just gone down in terms of application. They don't feel safe, they don't feel welcome, and they especially don't feel welcome lately. Yeah. Uh, so, and then uh, we have a birth rate that's the lowest now in, in our lifetimes. In the United States. And we're living longer. Yeah, and I'm talking about the US. Yeah, yeah. Now I do go around the world and I hear, how can we replicate Silicon Valley? 
And that's a, that's a, to me, like you have to get over that question because we have research triangle. Uh, we, we have other great places. We have great places, and I love what Steve Case has done. I was part of his tour for a little bit where you know, there's a lot of great places in, in the United States, but there's a lot of great places around the world where there's innovation. And what it is to me, and I was talking earlier, we've actually ranked countries in the world and we rank states with a separate scorecard of how innovation friendly they are. We have created our own criteria. There are criteria, you could disagree. They're based on third party sources for the most part, but there's some subjectivity in our part. For the states, we look at tax policy, labor policy, friendliness to new business models like uh, drones and self-driving cars and Uber and Lyft and Airbnb. Uh, we look at other things that matter, we think. And then when we do the global one, we use slightly different rankings uh, because we have, in the United States, common law is a common constitution. Other countries don't have the same liberty that we have. We think that's very important. Not only the right freedom of religion, but freedom to choose your political parties and vote for someone in a meaningful way. Freedom to access the internet. Freedom to marry who you want. Liberty is important. Clean air and clean water is important. We put it in there because we're really good at the US. It's a well-kept secret, but we're one of the cleanest air and water in the world at this point. Um, and then there is other criteria like broadband speed and choice. There's uh, diversity we think is very important. We talked about it earlier, it's, it's a challenge to measure, but we, th we want it in there as a criteria and we'll come up with better ways to measure it. Uh, and other things, and you could go on our website and you could see any of these. And we have only done like I think 60 countries at this point or so because we need more data and some of the data just isn't there. Uh, but we're continuing to look at how we can expand that because we believe that every country has the potential and every country wants it. Yeah. And that's important because the, the will is there. And the diversity thing is really important. That's a real hidden American strength that we don't usually talk about. Because we, I've been to Asia, I used to say Asia and, and paint it with one brush. I know that's wrong because the Chinese have proven to be very innovative. But in homogeneous cultures like most Asian countries, there's a lot of uh, agreement. In Japan, there's not even a word for no. So they make decisions together that are, you know, they're very pleasing to the group, but not very good sometimes. And there's a lack of creativity. We used to say the Chinese aren't creative or innovative. They sure are. I mean, they, you know, you have a thousand people working on the same thing, and maybe a copy of an American internet system, but they'll make it better. You know, there's no question that WeChat, which is the Chinese system for almost everything, is much better than what we have. We do crazy things like we try to make things illegal, like in, sorry, Pennsylvania. Uh, Philadelphia, first city in the country to ban and actually to require that if you go into a restaurant or a retail store, you must have the right to pay cash. They're trying to get rid of these electronic systems. Now in China, it's welcome to do that. In the US, the message of Philadelphia is sending is we don't like innovation. Now it's all well intentioned. We're trying to protect poor people. Never mind that poor people, there's lordy laws that say that it, the way poor people are paid has to be accepted. This goes way beyond that. So by forcing uh, uh, your businesses to have to accept care, you're imposing costs, you're creating fraud, and frankly, you're depriving the government coffers of a lot of money. Because one thing government employees do not realize is the cash economy is huge in the United States. And all the, forget all the disparity of wealth numbers and all that, we are not counting the right statistics here. There are total cultures that are, a lot of immigrants are based on the cash economy. So you're encouraging a cash economy, you're encouraging uh, bad measurements, lack of tax revenue, and a lot of things, and a, a lack of innovation. All right, we got to get to some questions. So I want to, I want to get some, see some hands here. Oh, I'm happy to call that. on folks otherwise. <laughs> um, okay. So this gentleman here, my friend Tony Carroll, and and this woman here. Okay. Yes, thank you. Uh, thanks for putting this on. This is a very important subject. Yeah, name, rank, and serial number. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
Eagles uh, Milbergs, I, I was the Economic uh, Development Director for Washington State from 2008 Good. to 2013 from the nadir of the recession recovery. Washington State's doing great, Seattle's doing great. Um, my question revolves around how healthy our innovation ecosystem is, how competitive it is. A couple of quick points. One, uh, 25 years ago, 95% uh, of the venture capital activity in the world was going on in the U.S. Today it's below half, about 50%. Uh, if you look at the infrastructure around the world that's going in, uh, we're way behind on a whole pile of uh, variables here. It looks like other nations uh, are out of the starting blocks uh, faster than we are. We are a net importer of advanced technology, not an exporter, which mm -hmm. we used to be. So the question I have is, one, are there lessons that we can learn from other nations that we could adopt here? Uh, is our high-tech sector at risk? Is this a Sputnik moment that we really have to double down and figure out our future when it comes to innovation? Great. Thank you. Uh, this woman here. Nicholas, give this woman the microphone, please. You have to answer the question first. No, we're going to bunch the questions. Go ahead. Okay. Name, yes. rank, and serial number. Uh, my name is Karen St. John. I'm retired from BP. My question is around uh, the role of corporate leadership, particularly in trying to sustain these ecosystems that are going to be innovative and productive. You know, we just had this whole, uh, we're still having the debate about Amazon and uh, how much it should be given, be giving back. Uh, you've got Silicon Valley, which is, which is referred to as a, as a model, uh, but yet we're having arguments today about what, what are the roles of some of these companies in terms of the community. Okay. And so I'd be interested in any okay. of your views on that. Okay. Tony Carroll. Hi, Tony Carroll. I'm a former senior associate here. I teach at Johns Hopkins, and I have a consulting firm. Um, I'm, I think it's, if we're looking at a reasonably static demographic, you mentioned population growth in the United States, it's one thing to uh, try to maybe shift the uh, focus to create uh, new opportunities and new reskilling. But one of the things that I confront in this area uh, is I do most of my work in Africa, and I'll be speaking on, on this next week in a conference in Johannesburg. What about confronting the demographic bulge that Africa now has and will have for the next 30 or 40 years in terms of how we're going to create employment opportunities when we're seeing growth rates that are just absolutely un unprecedented in, uh, in human history? So I'm worrying about, that's great, we can create new opportunities in this country, changing some of the population from doing one thing to the next. But when you've got this massive on, you know, uh, a growth of population, young people, it's going to create an environment of instability, and they're going to have to be employed in some way. And just as a, a note, I would recommend that you take a look at a recent paper by Jack Goldstone, a leading demographer, dem demographer on the impact of Africa's population growth. Great. Okay. So one of the disruptions that we often don't talk about is the demographic disruption. Some is global aging. We talked a little bit, referenced that here in the U.S., but also... Uh, the massive youth bulge. There are, there are both of these disruptions happening at the same time. And we looked at this, we did a report, and, we, and Aaron Williams, one of the four co-chairs of this report, we looked at in terms of the, the future of work. And certainly much, much of the attention on the future of work has been around technological disruption, but I would argue that demographic disruption is as big in many countries or even bigger 
than technological disruption, or you could, you could argue that. So there have been three really interesting questions put on the table. I'll let my, our panelists just respond to any as however they want to do so. Sarah, I'll start with you. I will start with the last question. Um, I don't know, and I don't think we know. Um, what I do think is promising, uh, especially as we're talking about this through the tech lens, are um, organizations like Andela, who are, I believe they're located in West Africa. I don't know. In Nigeria. Are they in Nigeria? Well, it started in Nigeria. What they is started Andela? in Nigeria. And, uh, and you might be able to better yeah, describe we, their. Yeah, we're an investor in Andela. They, they create world-class developer talent in Africa because the number of jobs needed mm -hmm. that are world-class developers far outstrips the education system's ability to do it. So they're a private entity that's creating these developers and they got and they can work for anybody in the world. They can work for Amazon and in, in, uh, in uh, Crystal Right, City. which gets to your corporate question a little bit because isn't, um, I don't know who some of the founding corporations were of Andela, um, but I believe they started it through um, sort of corporate philanthropy at first. Um, maybe not. Yeah, they had a they, they were VC initially, um, but yeah, they've got some a lot of philanthropy. And most recently, I believe the biggest VC was uh, Al Gore's unit just put 100 million into them. And so they link these uh, recently trained students with first internships uh, with companies. A lot of them are based in the U.S. IT sector companies, and then it's almost a trial period. And then these individuals are employed or in some fashion, I don't know if, you know, to what degree it's full employment or not, but it provides jobs. Um, is it going to solve the youth bulge problem? You know, I don't pretend to say that, but I think there's really interesting models out there that need to be scaled and tested so that we're not avoiding that and just, uh, I'm not saying you're avoiding it, but I think we're all concerned about it and I don't think we have great scalable solutions to address that issue. Could you, do you want to comment on the question about uh, the health of our innovation ecosystem? I suspect you have a view on that, Sarah. Sure. I think it varies depending on the state. I think a lot of innovation ecosystems you know, vary, by, vary by state, by their regulations and what they invest in. I think the states that are doing the best are the ones that have committed investment to R&D. Um, and also state-driven venture funds. So Utah, for example, uh, which is Silicon, which one is it? You know, it's Nairobi is Silicon, Silicon Savannah, Duke. and I, Silicon Slopes is Utah. And everybody's got a different <laughs> Silicon. Um, but I think there's a lot of states who are doing some interesting things that, of course, aren't California. Um, and I think they're the ones that have those, uh, they're state-run. Now, they, they um, outsource the operations of the VC fund, but they recognize there is a role of the state in terms of investing in innovation, which has always been the case in the U.S. I think uh, what's most alarming to me in the U.S. is our decrease in funds and R&D overall uh, with some of our federal agencies when you compare that to the 50s and 60s. And I think that fueled a lot of the innovations that um, made Silicon Valley happen. I think part of that story is left off. And I think we're not committing to that longer term play in technology development. So I think that's concerning compared to other countries that are playing that long game. Maggie? Yeah, so the, the innovation ecosystem is thriving, but I agree with you there's some concerns. I think. A lot of VC money now is concentrating into very, very large, big investments, trying to seek the next unicorn. We want to make sure that enough early in seed stage, seed stage funding is there, A and B rounds. Um, uh, for smaller companies that are really, uh, the long term, that's the drivers of innovation. Um, so 
big concentrated large sources of capital, but is it getting uh, distributed well? Um, corporate leadership matters. Uh, Carolyn from uh, BP. Um, I think people are recognizing that their social license to operate, that the long-term resilience and sustainability that's needed for this innovation engine to continue depends on people making good ethical choices. Um, bad products that have harms that are unchecked, um, they don't need only regulation to check them. They need leadership to check them. People to take responsibility for the harms for their products and put out good products that are good for people and make money. Um, and so on the youth bulge, I think technology is undoubtedly part of the solution. Maybe there's some issues that you know, people talk about whether manufacturing is, you know, and the latter that it used to be for countries, you know, that's changed. But I still see, for example, what we talked about in digital identity, getting more people access to participate in the real economy because they're bankable or they have the ability to engage or safety nets reach them so they get back into the workforce if they're on, or they could generate some money to start a, start a business. All of those create economic dynamism and reduce you know, waste and reduce corruption. In the end, that bigger pool, that bigger dynamic economy is what's needed. It's, and it's also about the quality of that work, right? And it doesn't all have to be tech, although great if it is, but tourism, you know, higher value agriculture, construction, all of these can be facilitated by more dynamism, and I think tech is definitely part of the solution, as long as we make sure that, that the safeguards are in place. Okay, Gary, let me just give you just a brief, make just a brief response to anything you heard here, because I want to move to your making some larger remarks from the, from the podium. Yeah, I, I love the in innovation infrastructure question, but I want to answer the leadership question because <laughs> I, I think we have a failure of leadership in our country. For me, the defining moment was just recently during the federal government shutdown when you had the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House basically agree to go to their bases and throw out the government workforce, basically, overboard for a couple of months, essentially taking two months of progress out of our country for just so they could go to their base and define the issue that defines the difference between the two parties at this point. And it was, yeah. and, and that was my point where I said, I have to stand up and do something, and I personally did. I mean, we not only uh, fed some government workers, but we, we were ready to go with an ad in the Washington Post signed on by 40 major association leaders like myself and, and labor unions uh, saying, we're better than this. And I, uh, there's a failure of leadership in this country, and I think there's a growing sense of the corporate community, whether it be on individual rights, like who you can marry, and things like that, or even how our country is run, that, that it's not being done right. You know, these two warring political parties are irrelevant, in a sense, to what we're trying to do as a country, and we're doing pretty well as a country despite them. So, you know, Washington focuses on things which are irrelevant to most people and has their battles, and it, you know, it may get great television ratings, which is part of the problem, but it's not, it doesn't go to the world our kids will inherit from us. And I think that's a serious problem. All right. So on that note, let me, I'm going to ask Gary, you, you've got, the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, Gary's just written a book that if, um, he's, he's promised to sign free copies of if you stick around to, <laughs> till the end. So you got to stick around. But Gary, you, you know, you're the president and CEO of the, of the uh, Consumer Technology Association. Um, you've written three books. Your new book is called Ninja Future, which I'm two thirds of the way through. And I did buy retail. And it's, it's about, 
this issue of innovation and how we make innovation happen and what's it take for countries to, and you looked at it from a global standpoint, not just from a U.S. standpoint, so we thought it was appropriate that you make some remarks. And so I'm hoping uh, folks will stick around to hear Gary, but also to get copies of his book. I'm really enjoying his book. Gary, come on up here. Okay. Thanks. All right. Thank, Thank you for that introduction. Of all the uh, introductions I've ever received in my career, that was without question the most recent. <laughs> so you've heard a little bit of my viewpoint, but I want to tell you about um, Ninja Future. So I've been writing about innovation and talking about it for over a dozen years now, and it stems from our viewpoint as an organization. So I'm a corporate employee, so that's what I am. I'm a corporate leader. Um, but it really stems from a meeting we had. Uh, there was a defining moment for our board over a dozen years ago where we, someone interrupted and said, forget the agenda. How are we going to be doing in 10 or 15 years as an industry, the consumer technology industry? And what's amazing to me is how brief the conversation was. Everyone around the table said that we will not be doing well because the economy of the United States would be faltering because we were not paying attention to our own economic health and we weren't focusing on what mattered and we were giving our kids and our grandkids a debt they will never be able to pay because we as a generation are taking things for ourselves and promising ourselves benefits which are unpayable. So we said, well, what can we do about that? When you have a national debt as large as ours, and then it was, it was under 10 trillion and now it's over 21 trillion. Well, you could do one of three things. You could raise taxes, you could cut spending, or you could have economic growth. So we decided we would go and support any solution that a bipartisan group came up with, which said that of raising taxes and cutting spending. We're not your typical group that just says cut taxes. We're willing to raise taxes. We even supported the bipartisan commission that Obama supported results, which said basically you use a consumption tax, which is like, for us, it's like death, but uh, we were willing to support that because it was bipartisan and would go towards reducing the deficit. In terms of cutting spending, we have plenty of ideas. Uh, we're especially talking now about health care costs and using technology as an alternative to drugs, given that the drug industry is is uh, charges U.S. consumers much more than anyone else in the world and tries to justify it. You could watch their ads if you want on television about how they make it sound like cutting drug prices is un-American and Americans should be paying more than anyone else in the world. It's kind of it's weird. Um, but we, we don't talk that much about it. Our focus is but on growth. So we said we're going to focus on growth because a, a growing economy does actually you save a lot of money. More people are paying taxes. There's less people on the public um, welfare or dole or recipients, and it's healthier for everyone because work is good. Work gives you a sense of purpose, which is really something I'll get into in a minute. Um, so we said, how can we grow the economy? Well, growth comes from innovation. And innovation is what we should be talking about as a national strategy and who we are and what we do. And how do you get innovation? What is innovation? Innovation has been defined as creating value of something that's not been produced before. When I've talked to, I've been corrected in that because governments can innovate. Uh, I've talked to various government agencies in this town about how they do innovate and where they're focused on innovation. It's just not producing something people pay for, it's providing greater efficiency. It could be like what Starbucks does, which produces ambience in an atmosphere. It could be a quicker, better way of doing things. And the United States has actually had a very, very good run with innovation, uh, certainly in Seattle uh, and other parts of Silicon Valley and elsewhere around the country. But why is that? We have to ask ourselves. And 
in looking at it, to me, it's a combination of a bunch of lucky circumstances that for those of us in the room that are American, I know a lot of you are, are not, uh, I apologize for being eccentric, but I have talked about around the rest of the world about some of these same principles. And then, first of all, we have a culture of innovation here. It is a culture, one of a few, maybe Canada and Israel, the other two, where it's okay to fail and you could be viewed as being learning something rather than a failure in life. So our, when our kids fail or when businesses fail, when someone starts off, when I'm hiring people, the fact that they've failed at something, you know, they, you know, what have they learned? And we always learn from failure. We don't usually learn from success. Success teaches us that we think we're greater than we really are and we're smarter. Sometimes you're just lucky and that's a fact. So failure to me is the great learner. We also have a, uh, a constitution. Uh, Bill of Rights, a First Amendment that allows all these great things for us, allows us to have dissent, it allows us to disagree with each other. We have a culture of immigration here, most of us descend from immigrants, most of whom came here voluntarily, and for a better life. So all of us, in, in one way or another, seem to come from people that thought there was a better way of doing things. So that mix has been a wonderful mix in the United States, and our diversity, being so diverse, and as I said earlier, you, you go to some places in the world, Asian cultures, uh, especially, uh, I'd say, Japan, where everyone agrees with everyone. There's no word for no. It's something that um, everyone agreeing does not produce. We're very good at disagreeing. The other thing is we're a very young country. We're only a couple hundred years old. And in a way, that's difficult. So we disagree on, on issues that most other countries have long since resolved, most social issues, issues like abortion and, and marriage and different religions and things like that. If you if you've all have one religion and one culture and one set of values, you know, you don't have these battles we have with each other that are so divisive on, on certain things. Other countries are passive, but we disagree a lot as a nation. I'm not saying it's all bad. Uh, I'm not saying it's all good, but it is what we have as a nation. So that focus on innovation, what else does it take? Well, we're pretty much blessed to have one language for the most part, English, that we've, we've accepted. And, um, and we have a great university system. Uh, all the way up. Now I know there's a lot of talk about our educational system. If you want to really get discouraged, talk about to the, some of the younger people in your organizations and talk to them about their student loans. Not only why they took them out, but even ask them if they know the interest rate they're paying uh, and what they're doing. It's kind of shocking actually to me. That there's a lack of financial literacy in our country uh, and, and I would say our educational system does need an overhaul, but I don't lose sleep over the fact that we're not great at rote learning for science and, and some, some other things, or even spelling. Um, but, but there is, when you compare our, our national scores compared to others, we don't do as well, um, especially compared to other developed countries. But that's okay because we're much more creative, I think. And if you look at what we export, we export creativity. It's not only Hollywood and music, it's video games, it's our, it's our technology like what Apple has. It's our chip companies. It's our drug companies. We are creating things and we're good at it. Now, does that produce a lot of manufacturing jobs here? No, but I I've been in factories all over the world and I've, it's not that they're necessarily deplorable. Some of them were increasingly less. It's just that they're, they're, a lot of the jobs are still very repetitive and rote and anyone with a high school degree is gonna struggle with that. So we have a very highly educated population which would not be happy at those jobs. So 
If you accept the fact that we are an innovative country, the question is how do we keep it? We're not investing in physical infrastructure. We're not even investing very well in broadband structure. I mean, we debate things that are really, to me, less relevant, like net neutrality, rather than debating how do we get many different broadband providers to compete with each other and produce the competition we need. That's one of the reasons I'm excited about 5G. I'm excited about Wi-Fi as a escape hall. I mean, I love what the cable industry did. They they. They knew they were going under. They had a strategy. They said, we're going to be broadband providers rather than just one tube entertainment providers. And they created the technology to do that. So different industries have strategies. Our nation should have a strategy. And the strategy should be built around education and our unique skills. This is where I tell every community in the world, don't build yourself around Silicon Valley. Build yourself around what your strengths are and where you can achieve and go to and focus on those. And that's what we have to do. And I think we're doing it for the most part, but we're doing it with a, lot, a lack of national leadership. And, when, and, and I was telling people earlier, I don't lose sleep in my job uh, so much about our national leadership um, doing the right thing. I worry about them doing the wrong thing. If they don't do anything, I think we'll be okay for the most part. But I worry about, because I've had a career that's focused on preserving innovation at every level, starting out as a student, actually, in Georgetown here, preserving the legality of the VCR, to talking about home recording generally, to focusing on the internet and how we could commercially exploit that, to going along further with HDTV and having the best global standard in the world, to creating a goal and going for that goal. And that's the, jo that's the job of leadership, when I see leadership. You create the big goal. You don't say how you're going to get there. You, you rely upon a community of well meaning people from government, from the private sector, from consumer groups and others to get together to achieve a worthwhile goal. I mean, it's, it's tried to talk about the man on the moon Kennedy goal, but we haven't had one of those since then. And we could have one with self-driving cars that say we want to eliminate a certain number of deaths by a certain date. We could do it in other ways for other other products. When I think about some of the things come along, the technology tools, I was at, um, I was listening to National Public Radio this morning and I heard uh, Tim Burton Lee, the guy who invented the World Wide Web, celebrating his 30th year and he was lamenting what he'd created. And I was at dinner with him last week, he was doing the same thing, it was off the record, but since he said it on NPR, I'll, I'll tell you what I said to him, was, you know what, you're, you're beating yourself up for something you created. You know, when man invented fire, well he didn't invent fire, he man harnessed fire, discovered fire, you know, a zillion years ago, it was a great thing. You could, you could survive a winter. You could eat food that you wouldn't otherwise be able to eat. But fire was also used as a weapon. Every technology is neutral. It could be used for good, and it could be used for bad. And whether it's the wheel, the fire, the computer, the internet, the airplane, they could be tools of destruction and death, or they could be used for good. So it is what it is, but it's the job of government to come along and say, here are, is, is the lanes you must operate in as business, and it's also the job of industry, I think, to say, here's what we should do that's right. Because every business is composed of people. And those people have families, and they have kids, and they should have a moral sense. And I think what we lost in the last 40 or 50 years is there used to be a moral sense among business leaders in the country. And we seem to have lost a little bit of the, the, the moral sense of business leaders sometimes is just the shareholders. And I think we've ebbed at that, and now we're going in a different direction. And I think the direction is that you owe, you owe something to society. And the other thing is if you don't take care of yourself, you will be regulated. So we, we represent all the people who make uh, the devices that you wear and monitor your heart rate. Um, mine's 67. Uh, so we felt under the Obama administration they're about to regulate us. So that was 
provoked us to get into a room with Google and Fitbit and Samsung and uh, Apple and everyone else. And, and within three months, we created a standard which says this is how we'll regulate privacy. We'll voluntarily do it. We'll be clear language what our policies are. We'll be transparent. We'll, we will not sell commercially without express permission. We'll allow anyone to opt out. And I haven't heard about a problem then with these devices. But some of the privacy issues we heard talking about earlier, they're very... Um, broad brushed like GDPR. Europe is so good with privacy. They have the right to be forgotten. They have GDPR. They want to regulate artificial intelligence now the same way. They want to do everything they can to regulate. The result has been for Europe with all this overregulation, frankly, is they have almost no innovation going on. There's some. I mean, France is great. They have several hundred companies and they have a great leader who's focused on innovation. But generally, uh, there's been only a handful of European unicorns, companies with a value over a billion dollars young companies. The Europe has several hundred. China has a couple of hundred. So how is it that China, which is bigger than Europe and, and uh, North America combined, in terms of people and probably land mass, uh, is doing so well right now, and U.S. is doing well, but Europe isn't doing well. In my view, it comes down to, it's multifactorial. I mean, there are different languages are an issue, but it's regulation over regulation. And now we're entering an era where artificial intelligence is absolutely critical to economic and physical health. And the physical health we're going to see with artificial intelligence, you know, we're going to have longer lives, we're going to have personalized medicine, we're going to have all sorts of things that are going to change how we live, work, and play, and how the entire world does, because it'll affect water, clean water, agriculture, uh, healthcare, medicine, transportation, communication, education, and entertainment. And it's a global battle that's going on. And right now, mostly it's between the North America, US and Canada, Canada's doing pretty good, and, and China. And China has, um, is behind, but they have a better strategy than we have right now. They have no privacy. They have a huge amount of data. They have a national focus on AI. They have a million engineers a year they're graduating. Not all of them, some of them we would consider um, very minor technical skill engineers, but some of them are very sophisticated. And, what the, and their business models to take whatever we've done really well and improve upon it with a thousand companies competing against each other. So AI, they have a good strategy. The European strategy is not very good. It's, well, we think it's important and we're gonna regulate the heck out of it. That's their strategy. That's not gonna work. It's, it's, it doesn't make me want to invest in Europe as much as I love Europe and Europeans. Uh, because what we do share with Europe as a, as a nation is a shared culture, a shared value of liberty and, and individual rights. The United States is like Goldilocks in the, th in the three barrels right now. Our porridge is just the right temperature, uh, but we're about and the recipe of adopting, as California has, the uh, European privacy mechanism, which would pretty much stifle a lot of artificial intelligence. And everyone says they're really concerned about these big companies, and I represent all the big companies, and 80% of our membership is small companies. The truth is those big companies will deal with these regulations. Um, the small companies, the new entrants, it's just huge barrier to entry. We're already seeing that with GDPR. We're seeing people have cut back, businesses who can't do things, a lot of disruption in a huge way. Uh, because the truth is what we have failed to do as an industry, and I, I have not convinced people of this a dozen years ago when I surfaced, is to set the privacy rules and the internet rules so instead of reading those lengthy things that no one's ever read, uh, that you get a diamond platinum, gold, silver standard, and you just click and you know what you're getting pretty much. So it's some third-party certification that everyone agrees upon. But one of the things is with artificial intelligence coming, which is a, a little bit of the topic I was asked to talk about, is jobs. And we could talk about all these things that are great with artificial intelligence, and absolutely they are. It's, it's going to change lives. But we have to deal with, and we have to develop skills in one area uh, that I've had 
worked on and I'm not there yet, and that is empathy. And that is an understanding that there's fear out there among people which is natural that they will lose their jobs. Now the truth is, is in every technology that's come along, there's been concerns about that and jobs, at least in the, in the modern era. Um, and new jobs were created, but all jobs were lost. There's not a lot of blacksmiths anymore. There's not a lot of uh, people who ride horses, at least in the developed world. Um, people who make horse equipment, travel agents, bank tellers, things like that, although you could argue the other side of some of those because the efficiency of those allowed the technology which theoretically replaced those people created new opportunities. And they certainly created new jobs, and there is disruption. There is that period of time. Now, with artificial intelligence, and especially self-driving cars, we're facing a situation where you have, by definition, the number one occupation in the world of driving right now, at least a formal occupation. Um, and that there's a lot of concern about a disruption there. But when you think about the disabled and the older people that will empower and the lives that will save a million globally a year, 35,000 in the US if we just get 90% of the accidents removed, it's worth doing. So the question is, what do you do about all these people? And it's also in factories and, and it's less skilled. What do you do about them? How do you deal with it? And what can you do today? So with today, I think there's, it's brighter than I would indicate. Because first of all, empathy. We are living longer. We have the lowest birth rate we've ever had. We're not allowing immigrants in, or we're reducing dramatically in tone. Um, we're clearly, that's the direction we're heading in. Um, uh, on almost any scenario. So what are we going to do? Well, first of all, we have a lot of jobs for a while. There will be a recession in the next you know, one to three or four years because there is a business cycle. Uh, and then we'll free up some of the workers. Right now, we have several million jobs open. Uh, we can't, it's the number one issue now for my 2,000 members is hiring people. They're lowering their standards, they're getting rid of drug tests. Uh, we have a whole thing with veterans that we've, we finance to get veterans to work using their veterans classification. And we're trying everything we can from the earliest kids, su just supporting youth clubs in, in this area, to moving along to college, to, to supporting startups. We just announced our organization, a $10 million fund to invest in women and minority-owned or led startups because there's, there's a lack, let's be honest, there's a lack of money going there because people invest in people they're comfortable with and 95% of the people making decisions are white men. Uh, so there's just underinvestment in, in populations which have great potential and are overlooked. To going on further, so what else can we do? Well, we just announced, uh, uh, Ginny Rometty of IBM announced a partnership with us uh, to do, focus on apprentices. So IBM has uh, taken a program which is traditionally aimed at like plumbing or hand skills to brain skills. And they're doing it at IBM, and they've opened that up to any company that wants to do it. We already have 50 companies signed up. We just announced this in January. 50 uh, major companies are interested in learning how IBM does it, have their apprenticeship program where you go from high school, or maybe uh, being in the military, or even as they brought out on stage at our event in January, a dreamer. Uh, and they are, you can get trained within a year and almost certainly get a job with a company that's, that's training you. So you get skills without our crazy educational system where we are promiscuously throwing huge amounts of money at kids that they don't even understand they're borrowing and that they are then debt-ridden to pay back for 
being trained in things which don't have that much marketability right now, frankly. So what areas should kids be going to? You might be asking yourself that even as parents. Um, obviously, data analysis is absolutely huge. Having breakfast with the governor of Virginia this morning, there was a lot of discussion about what Virginia's doing in terms of redirecting our, our universities and even our high schools to try to teach things which are marketable, such as uh, IT, software uh, creation, various uh, computer services, data analysis. Um, those are real jobs which will be open. Now the problem is those are risky in a sense because they change rapidly. It used to be you stopped, you know, creating websites was a big deal, but then all of a sudden hyperlinks came and services which created websites with templates and it changes so quickly that you may be learning something which will be outdated in three or four years. But then the other side of the human equation jobs, because we'll be living longer and because there's a shortage of immigrants and because we need help and we're an aging population, who's going to take care of us? We will need people that have basic human skills, not only for help with the aging and disabled population, but also to help at the jobs that are, have human skills, which it'll be a long time before AI replaces it. And if you want to look at AI in a real big sense, and I don't want to scare you or depress you, the truth is AI may be our savior, because never before in the history of mankind have we had so many threats to our, our existence. We have global warming, we have potential war, a lot of nuclear powers. We have amazingly ability to quickly spread disease and we're getting, I know we've cured some, but we're getting resilience to others. Uh, you know, we're the only species capable of killing itself and the, and the history of, of all species on the earth is that 95% of them have become extinct. So the odds are pretty overwhelming we're gonna become extinct. So two things are happening um, in the artificial intelligence world which will, will help us. One is artificial intelligence, there's certain levels. Right now we're at the basic level which is you could do one function. You could, you could fly an airplane, you could drive a car, you could win at Go or chess, or, or do run a factory thing that could identify different shapes and package them. Um, but increasingly, the, the goal is to replicate and then surpass the human mind. Once you've surpassed the human mind, there's a lot of ethical issues I'm happy to talk about afterwards. But the truth is, once you've replicated the human mind, then you could replicate a human mind. Any one of your minds can be replicated, any one of your brains. But there's still a physical structure which has to be replicated. How do you do that? Well, the advances in robotics are rather quick and fast, and you could soon replicate, not soon, but within the next 20, 30, 40 years, the human body for the most part. We're already seeing it. Some of you might be have artificial parts in your bodies, uh, but we're going there quickly. So when you get the body and the brain together, artificial intelligence, we may replicate ourselves, solve the problems of healthcare because we'll live forever, disappoint our great-grandchildren we'll never see. I mean, it raises a huge number of ethical issues. I don't know how many want to live forever, uh, but the truth is that may save humankind going forward. So on that happy note, I don't have any idea where I am with time or if I've covered the subjects that you desired. Are we okay? Could I take a question or a response or not? And we have any? Yes, we have a, oh wait, is there a microphone? You know, there's, I've been to places where they throw the microphone. You, because you asked the first question, I will sign your book first. I usually let my staff have the first meal first in our all staff meetings. Well, my name is Lilian Peraza from Venezuela, Mexico. And my question would be like, even though here in America, I have been living here for six years, it's amazing the innovation and everything that we can have. In Latin America, we don't have that. How are you, what do you think it would be the best way to connect? Because when you travel to a country that is so developed like this, and you're coming from Latin America, in this case, Venezuela is a very particular ex example, but Mexico <laughs> is kind of more close. 
uh, you don't have the access to many things in your country. And then when you travel, you are like far away from, you know, from being part of the country or being part of the culture. So how do you deal with Latin America? You talk about Europe and China. That's a great question. Uh, my view of, of that is number one, doing what you're doing, be here and go back and back and forth in, in cultural exchange to, to, to get the education, to spread the world, to have the skills and to help foster business there. And frankly, US policy helps that in one way, and that is we don't welcome foreign graduates to stay here. It's, it's a dumb policy in ours, but it does benefit the rest of the world. I used to go to conferences where um, my colleagues from around the world would get angry at, at me in the US because we were taking their best uh, citizens and keeping them here and training them and giving them PhDs. Uh, we don't do it, we kick them out now. So our stupidity is your gain, but I, would, I, I think that encourages cultural exchange. The second is to figure out what you're really good at and tap that. I mean, Latin America has, is huge, I, I love Latin America because there is a, a sense of purpose there. There's a strong religious base, which I think is culturally binding and very positive. There's a, there's a great work ethic. I mean, when people say, this is where the administration gets me very upset in the right wing. Is I think immigrants that are here, especially illegally, are the hardest workers in the world. I don't know how, you, I mean, you'd be blind not to see that. And part of it is cultural, part of it is economic. But the bottom line of it is you figure out what you're good at, and I think you, you, you do it to the best of your ability, and you, you, you figure it out. You know, Mexico kind of blew their advantage in oil, as did Venezuela. Um, that was, that was, there was no good strategy there that stuck. There was a, the while there, in Venezuela, I think you should change your leadership, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's take one more question and then I think we'll... we'll Your call. You're the boss. Yeah. Al Jefe. I saw a hand right there. Thank you. My name is Greg Shuckman. Gary, I, am, um, I read Fast Company and Wired and Popular Mechanics and Fortune, and I feel like you're the living embodiment of what I read. <laughs> this is fantastic. Oh, so good. I, I'm glad you I was said also, that. I was also the chair of Could Northern be reading Virginia. it because you disagree with it. No, I no, no, no. I, I, I was also the chair of Northern Virginia Community College, so uh, hopefully NOVA is, is at the MVTC. I think community, I, I didn't mention that, but between the community colleges are phenomenal, especially NOVA, actually. Yeah. So the, the question I wanted to ask, actually, was it came up about 1958. One of the other things that happened in 1958 was the passage of the National Defense Education Act. And that was what really sprinted us ahead in terms of the STEM workforce that led to all this innovation that we had in the 60s, late 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, are we at a point now where government should be considering an NDA too to deal with all of the new STEM I, challenges I, that we have? I don't think there's a silver bullet that our, I mean, our, the role of government, in my view, is to number one, set the, the, the parameters for business to operate in a way that you know it's legal to start. So like in Europe now, they, they go after our best companies because they use very vague antitrust laws. And now um, you have the leading light of the Democratic Party saying that capitalism has totally failed. Uh, the newest member of Congress from New York who was celebrating Amazon being kicked out of New York. So we have failed as our generation to educate our students on basic, since a lot of them, this is a view of a lot of the younger generation, that capitalism is, is, is a total failure. You know, to me, capitalism is the thing that's gotten more people out of poverty than anything else in the world. And it's just not innovation. It's also the free market system which encourages it. So in terms of I, I, the reason, I, 
I admire China's strategy, is they're choosing the right technologies in a broad way. They're looking at AI and robotics and some of the other fields which are really obviously the future. And I talk about my book and I use the two by two um, that a famous general used, cabinet secretary, that said, you know, we know what we know, we don't know what we don't know, and that's what will hurt you as a business, it could hurt you as a country, it could hurt you in anything. And then there's the other two boxes which you could work around, and you, could, you, should, you shouldn't just assume. My point is that strategies are really important, but so is flexibility. I don't advocate for strategic planning in the corporate sense. I advocate for a one-page or a two-page document laying out your five-year goals and then adjusting them along the way rather than tactical plans. So yeah, there's room to say we should be refocusing our educational system. Absolutely. And I can't help but resist include financial literacy and economic literacy as part of that. I'm not sure everyone has to be a scientist. I mean, I think a lot of people are smarter than I could, who could fix things. We need people who could fix things. We need to do what Germany has done, not only with apprenticeship programs, but to change the cultural attitude of the country. So in Germany, if you have a technical degree, you have equal status with somebody with a university degree. I don't know why university degrees are so great. I, I can't figure it out. You know, you could get, sorry if you're a major in art history, but an art history degree, and somehow you are better than someone who knows how to fix you know, the equipment in my, in my building. And that, that's craziness. And I think we have to change our cult, we have to have a cultural shift. And frankly, the safety valve for us for the last 30 or 40 years has been immigration. They're the ones who know how to fix stuff because they recognize it's a job that pays. And, and I, I don't know the demographics of, of Nova Community College, but I would say it's heavily immigrant, um, diverse community. And if we cut off that safety valve, nothing's going to work. We'll become like Venezuela is today soon. Um, so I'm, I'm concerned about our direction. That's what I'm saying. The first role of government is not to screw it up. And we're on the verge of doing that. Our failure to invest in infrastructure, our failure to allow immigration, to invest in technical education. Uh, we are so vulnerable as a country in so many different ways. And we have new threats like cybersecurity was talked about earlier. So we need a national strategy that makes sense rather than, I mean, if you listen to some of the debates like about walls and things, it's not that one side is wrong or right. They're both right and they're both wrong. But they're, they're not relevant to the problems our kids are going to face, because our kids are going to face a massive debt load that will suck every penny out of the economy. Interest rates go up a couple points, and we're spending a trillion dollars a year just on interest payments. Much less forget about national defense. That's why our defense leaders have said, this is the biggest threat to the national defense is our deficit. So, and our debt, uh, which is the accumulation of every deficit. So where are we in terms of education? I think we, have, we need a radical change to our educational system. It occurred to me this morning, listening to the governor of Virginia, you know, any state could do this. They could stand up there and say, this is what every citizen of our state shall have to know to get either a high school degree or to move along. There's basic things I think we need to know as human beings. I mean, you know, some things, then there's the old side of me. I'll go just one sec. Like, my kids are not learning cursive writing, or some kids aren't. And like, oh, that's really bad. On the other hand, to get them to learn Chinese in their school district is almost impossible. I, I'll tell you where I think my wife and I, my kids are six and 10 years old. They are fluent like native speakers in Mandarin and Polish because my wife immigrated from Poland and that's the primary language spoken in the house. The second language is Chinese because since the kids were born, we've had Chinese au pairs living with us that only speak Chinese to our kids. That's why they're there. Um, so that's, 
It's not that I, I, I fear that, because I don't want them beholden to their Chinese masters someday, long after I'm gone. Uh, but my wife won that discussion. So thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, we do have free books outside um, of, of Gary's book, so um, Gary's kindly uh, offered to stay and, and sign as many as he has time to sign. Uh, so if you guys queue up outside, we'll, we'll, uh, I think we have books for everyone. So thank you for coming.